Well, welcome back everybody to the Tech Whispers podcast. Our topic today has taken the world by storm and is being discussed in C-suites and boardrooms daily. Its power and potential are so significant that governments around the globe are trying to figure out how to regulate it. It has taken decades to become an overnight success. It, of course, is generative AI or Gen AI. And to help me unpack this, I'm joined by two amazing guests who have been living and breathing all things Gen AI. First is Dr. Lisa Palmer, a longtime industry veteran who recognized just how big this was gonna be before most, uh, which inspired Lisa to pursue a doctorate degree in Gen AI. After much coffee and years of no sleep, she completed her degree earlier this year and is now a leading AI strategist. My second guest is longtime Chief Information and Digital Officer, Anna Ransley, who we all know from her great work at Godiva, Heineken, and other global companies. Anna has had a great gift of a summer sabbatical, although I think she's been busy than ever as she's been out educating and advising boards and C-suites on Gen AI. So Anna, first of all, welcome, and I want to start with you. Uh, AI is really taking the world by storm, but this is not a new thing, right? So I want you to maybe provide some historical context and, and provide some perspective as to what's different now. Thank you, Dan. Uh, indeed, AI is not a new concept and has a, a rich history spanning more than seven decades, and you could say even longer. Uh, it probably started um, early on with the famous uh, Turing test that was proposed by Alan Turing back in the 50s, where he asked if machine could exhibit intelligent behavior that's indistinguishable from a human. Uh, which um, really set the stage for early AI research in the mid-50s and even saw a first neural network back then in the 50s and a successful machine learning model called Perceptron and one of the first natural language chatbots, Eliza. Um, that far back, all of this was already in place. But as recently as two years ago, um, it, was, it was really difficult for us to imagine how AI can really match human intelligence. Um, so what really happened? Um, a, a really a collection of innovations spurred growth. Um, and that meant that first training methods like the transformer model for text revolutionized AI by creating a faster processing in language. Then we had the availability of vast high quality data sets um, playing a very, very crucial role, which improved data uh, included news articles, book transcripts, and it really helped AI models learn the human language more effectively. And finally, these technological advancements uh, accelerated capabilities of AI, yet the fourth and most visible piece needed to happen, which was the easily accessible user interface through chat. So ChatGPT is what ultimately exposed the power of generative AI to an average consumer and really became the catalyst for the generative age. That's a great start, uh, and I appreciate that. And uh, welcome to you as well, Dr. Lisa Palmer, and congratulations on just the wild success of your new venture, Dr. Lisa AI. What a great name. Um, I know you're out advising a lot of companies. You're doing a ton of speaking, educating. I see you everywhere. Can you build upon what Anna just shared and maybe talk about the journey as you see it, Lisa? Thank you, Dan. It is an exciting time to be in this field for sure. So what I see happening is that for any technology, and Anna did a brilliant job of taking us through the history, for any technology to be widely accepted and really become embedded in our society, there are three conditions that need to exist. The technology has to be capable, which we've seen just explode in capabilities in the last, arguably in the last year. The regulatory environment has to be conducive to allow it to take to take flight. And we're seeing lots of interest happening in, uh, in not only in the United States, but from a global perspective in the regulatory environment right now. And then third, we've got to make sure that society is willing. We're at a place where society is willing to embrace this technology. And we're seeing a lot of public debate around what's happening with artificial intelligence right now. But I am bullish about the capabilities and what's going to happen here, what we have seen with ChatGBT and democratizing access to this generative AI technology, 
that explosion of popular interest in this particular piece of artificial intelligence, I see that as, as Anna mentioned, as a catalyst to propelling us forward to really gaining momentum in all three of those arenas now. Yeah, I want to come back to you in a couple of minutes, uh, Lisa, and, and uh, you one of the early um, visionaries, I think. You saw this coming before most. I want to unpack more of that with you. You know, Anna, you know, back to you, you know, with, with Gen AI, you know, being new, as you described those new, these new uh, reasons why that's the case. I see some CIOs and leaders taking kind of a cautious, go slow, wait and see approach. You see others taking a much more assertive, aggressive, you know, run, run fast type of, of posture. Is there a right path? What's the right path? What's at stake here? There's no solution that fits all. And it really depends on the company's propensity for risk-taking and also for what they need to do to stay competitive in the market. So every company needs to evaluate and, and see. If they go too slow, they will be left behind. If they go too fast, they, they take tremendous risks and having their staff not being ready for the transition. So each company needs to evaluate their individual factors. What everybody needs to realize though, is that you really can't stop generative AI from coming into our everyday lives, into every aspect. This technology is going to be embedded in everything that we do. And so what we need to do is first and foremost, we need to manage that transition. And that means we need to educate ourselves and others around us on what it is and what it isn't, what it's good at, what it's not. Um, it is not this magical solution that, that knows all the answers. It's not an oracle, but it's a very valuable tool that can help us accelerate. With that knowledge, we need to upskill and reskill the talent, and we need to do that at speed because this is coming very, very quickly. We also need to spend the time to anticipate. We need to understand how the skills that are needed will change over time so that we can continue delivering on the business strategy. And finally, probably the most important component, we need to engage uh, with our people and create a culture of continuous learning and development because things are going to shift and evolve uh, in areas that is very difficult for us to predict right now. Yeah, we're definitely gonna unpack more of that because I think you hit on something really important, Anna. And, you know, Lisa, a lot of our listeners are um, trying to get their arms around all this, right? We have a lot of board members who listen to this podcast because we talk about these topics in ways that people can really, really uh, get their arms around. But could you define the difference between AI and Gen AI? And then maybe just share the overarching advice that you're giving um, and unpack something that you said to me recently that really struck me, which is, Picking up productivity diamonds off the ground. I, I love that. So let's 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 unpack all that. I love to tell clients that. Let's not leave those productivity diamonds laying on the ground. So when I am speaking with executives and with boards of directors, I try to help them to understand that artificial intelligence, number one, is a bit of a catch-all term. And I equate it to being the same as saying ice cream. It's a category. It's a category of technology. And there are many flavors of ice cream and there are many flavors of artificial intelligence. And generative AI is really a type of artificial intelligence that allows for predictive capabilities within the scope of what it has learned from machine learning. So I'll give you an example. If you use predictive texting on your phone, you are using a form of generative AI. So that's something very basic that we all experience on a daily basis. If you're using an email client that predicts what, you, what it believes is best for you to complete that sentence, that's another form of generative AI. So these are some very simple ways to think about capabilities that already exist in the market today. What I like to advise clients to do is to think about Think about what generative AI can do on two different sides of the same coin. One is this, this productivity element, this picking up those productivity diamonds. Let's look for these places in our existing processes where we can embrace human plus AI to create a faster, more effective, more efficient completion of daily tasks. 
And then on the flip side of that same coin, I challenge them to really think about innovation and how can you think about new products, new services that you can bring to market as a direct result of the capabilities of artificial intelligence that are on the market today, and particularly around what is low-hanging fruit from a product and services perspective for generative AI. Lisa, you had me at ice cream. I mean, that's uh, great, great perspectives there. And, you know, Anna, kind of that's a good, good segue to the next question I want to ask you. Uh, John Rossman is the former Amazon exec. A lot of people know John. Um, he has a great book, The Amazon Way, he talks about the leadership principles. He's got a great newsletter called The Digital Leader Newsletter uh, that people should subscribe to. But recently he wrote an article titled, Is Your AI Plan Just Paving the Cow Pass? Now, of course, that's back to the Michael Hammer days of reengineering. Uh, and if anybody's ever driven in Boston, which I've had to do many times, you know the woes of what happens when you pave the old cow pass, right? And so as a profession, and we have a track record of automating old bad processes, bad habits, bad policies, basically we're paving the old cow pass. How do we break this, this cycle with AI, Anna? I love that uh, analogy with the cow path. That's excellent. Um, yeah, absolutely. We we need to rethink the way that we work and we need to find ways that AI can amplify what it is that we do because there's a, a very wide continuum of what it can help us with versus where, where it can hurt us. So um, I heard somebody say, and, and it's something that, that struck with me, that AI to knowledge workers is what the assembly line was to the manufacturing factory workers. And it's something that we need to really think about. That is That was a way that things were amplified for those assembly uh, workers because their jobs con continually changed. They dramatically changed to what they are today. But nobody's sitting around today saying they wish that things were on the assembly line the way that they were before. So it's it's just something that we need to really think through and say, how do we need to address the skills that we need to have? How does our daily job change? And how can we continue delivering value in this new world? Yeah, I love that. Uh, I love that quote. Uh, you know, Lisa, you're out there doing a lot of this work. Uh, you're seeing the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, this could get ugly really fast, right? So uh, how are you thinking about these things? I think it's important for people to take a balanced approach to thinking about what's happening with artificial intelligence. There's so much happening in the media. There's a lot of fear that is being that's proliferating across the market right now, largely as a result of media coverage, of policy concerns, of different opinions, which are always powerful. That's why we need diversity in artificial intelligence, because we need that diversity of opinions and thought brought together so that we do create the very possible best outcomes with artificial intelligence, just like with any technology that we want to bring to wide societal acceptance. We need to make sure that we focus on it well-serving humanity. And so in order to do that, I think from a business lens, we have to start very pragmatically. And let's think about what are the things that we could do that are low risk, but are high return. Let's start really practically and start there and dig in to what can be done to improve our businesses. And what I tell people is this, if you don't know where to start, take your own workday and all day long, all of those things that you do out of muscle memory, force yourself to stop and pause and ask yourself if there is a better way to do this in partnership with AI. Mm. And if you interrupt your own daily work process, in that mental fashion, you will come across a myriad of different places where you could be working differently, where you could be working smarter in partnership with artificial intelligence today. And if each of us were to do that in the different roles that we hold, instead of paving the cow path, we might be actually creating new ways of thinking and behaving and then share those lessons learned with others in your community, in your organization. Let's look for those opportunities. So that's a very, 
a very block and tackling thing that we can all do. But it's hard because you have to challenge yourself to think differently. And you have to interrupt your own processes and your own mental memory of how you're doing things on a daily basis. So that's the first thing that I would like to challenge people to do. And then on a more strategic level, let's let's put the right people, put the right resources in place for these bigger picture, more strategic, longer term and higher risk situations where you are thinking about leveraging artificial intelligence for innovation. Let's get the right resources in there to guide you, to advise you. Let's make sure that you're building a truly diverse uh, perspective, a group uh, perspective when you're doing this. So one is very pragmatic and practical, and the other is let's make sure we are bringing the right resources to the table to have a balanced conversation about what is possible with innovation against what is potentially risk that we need to mitigate against. And so I'm, I'm wildly positive about the power of a diverse team, a, a diverse team perspective to help you to solve that problem. A lot of nuggets there, Lisa, and I really like that perspective of, you know, partnering with AI, right? And uh, better to interrupt yourself than to be disrupted by, by someone or something else, right? So points well, well taken. You mentioned the fear factor of the media. You know, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't, you know, put that elephant in the room, you know, at least address that here. Uh, and I'd size it up quickly with a recent Yale CEO summit survey, where they found that 42% of CEOs say AI could destroy humanity in five to 10 years, destroy humanity. So how do you respond to that, Lisa? The statistic is startling that that many CEOs have that perspective. I don't share that perspective. I actually see artificial intelligence as another technology. We as intelligent humans have already historically navigated our way through similar disruptions in history. Now, I will agree completely that this is the largest disruption that I suspect I will see in my lifetime. In spite of that, I am absolutely positive that as intelligent humans, we can continue to wrap the right processes and regulations, policies around what we're doing with AI to ensure that it does well serve humanity. And I would much rather see us focus on the practical and real issues that exist today with things like bias that are being created with artificial intelligence systems, I would much rather see us focus on mitigating real harms than in worrying about strong AI or AGI that is sometime out in the future. And there's a lot of debate about how far it is out into the future. But again, I'm looking for that pragmatic balance between let's focus on the real harms that are happening today. So that's the keep our feet on the ground piece. And then let's also take a strategic lens for what are those things that are out in the future. And we're going to need to resource those differently and solve those problems in a different way. But I don't want us to lose sight on the issues that are real and happening today because we're fearful about something that may happen in the future. Yeah, yeah. Points well taken. And, you know, Anna, I mean, it's the fear of the unknown, right? And you're out. You've been talking to a lot of CEOs, C-suites. Um, how would you respond to those concerns? So as a sitting CDIO with a, a very rich career as a technology leader in a variety of companies and industries, I, I witnessed firsthand the transformative power of emerging technologies. And we've all seen the disruptive power of the internet, mobile phones, social media, which I think really served us as the rich training ground for what's to come and um, a significant number of lessons that we can then apply to navigate the future with more insight and experience. There are things now that we're looking um, in retrospect about what went right or went wrong with those technologies, we can apply those lessons to the future and see how can we prevent these negative consequences because um, I've been um, called an eternal optimist before more than once, but I would say that the risks of 
uh, generative AI and AI in general are, are very real. And it's really a choice that we need to make as a humanity about how we can proactively address these risks to make sure that one, what can we do to prevent them? Or two, how do we mitigate them, lower them? And then if they do occur, what is it that we need to do to manage them? So it's something that we need to, I think, take very seriously. I am a huge believer in regulation um, and pushing our um, regulators to go faster because it's, it's really not moving fast enough, but I am um, optimistic about the movement that I'm seeing. At the same time, we are all making choices as um, individuals. We're all making choices as employees about how we implement AI. So for example, um, one of the recommendations that I've made to the C-suites and to IT executives is when you have a business case for creating any implementation of AI in your organization, you need to proactively think about everything that could go wrong, whether it's a, a data breach or how are you using data that might be biased, et cetera. So have a very deliberate exercise of going through all of the potential pitfalls and everything that can go wrong and know what you're going to do about it. And you need to do that a lot more with this type of system than other systems. So there's a lot that's within our control. We just need to choose to pay attention to it and do it. Yeah, you know, there's, there's the CEO perspective, but I think individuals have concerns that are pretty legitimate, right? And so my, my good friend, uh, Charlie Feld, 55 years in our profession, he's one of the first CIOs uh, ever to have the title. And Charlie uh, recently said to me, if you don't like change, you're gonna like extinction even less, right? So talk to all the individuals out there who are concerned about their roles, concerned about their work that they're doing today, worried about becoming extinct. What would you say to them? I, I love that saying. Um, I also heard another one that resonated with me is the only people whose job will be replaced by AI are those people who don't figure out how to use AI to do their job. And so it's really, um, it's an accelerator. It's, it's something that will help us do what we need to do in our daily lives. And maybe that would change and it would um, allow us to do more high level work, but it's, it's still something that we need to um, figure out. Uh, AI will automate a lot of the menial tasks that we're doing or a lot of low value tasks that we're doing. And so we just need to figure out how do we um, spend our time on those value add activities. And what comes to mind is people that have not been through that level of grunt work or as we're removing um, the lower level activities, how do we maintain the same training and education in people so that when they get to the higher level jobs, they understand the context, they understand the impact of the work that they're doing. And um, it's, it's something that we really need to think through. So the analogy I like to use is we uh, all have calculators and we use them all the time, yet still at school, we are taught how to do arithmetic. Uh, same with, with code. As you're, if you're gonna be a code reviewer because coding is going to be largely done by artificial intelligence, how do you know how to review the code or what the quality of code is if you haven't written code? So we need to figure out paths that we can still maintain the same learning that we do. We're just gonna do it in a different way. Lisa, I gotta get you talking about this. This, uh, you know, this, this impact on the traditional career ladder, right? So maybe you take us out three, five, 10 years. What's this look like from a career journey perspective? And what do people do to get future ready? And uh, I think a lot, you know, you and I both advise and Anna, a lot of young people, college grads, and they're stuck in that. I need experience to get a job, but I need a job to get experience. And, you know, this gap is going to be pretty, pretty daunting for some. I think it's important for people to embrace the reality that if you had a strategy, if you had a career plan, if you had a plan of any kind that predated November 30th of 2022, when ChatGPT was released to the market, you need to rethink, pause and reevaluate what your plan was. And that very much equates to every individual and what's happening with their careers. I often have parents who have 
who have adult children who are in college or nearing completion of college or just out of college and they're grappling with this, what do I advise them to do? Everything has changed. So I'll point to the fact that in whole, right now, the changes that we're seeing take place are happening at a task level. So versus an entire developer's job being replaced, we're seeing tasks within that developer's job be automated through the leveraging of artificial intelligence. So right now, a lot of what's happening is really task-oriented alteration, and it is simply freeing up time to do things that are higher value tasks. The good news about that is that for those who are more junior, that opportunity to engage in higher level tasks, which is going to feel like a stretch for them because they're early in these roles, but that stretch is what's going to prepare them for that higher level function. So as AI continues to develop, we'll have this opportunity to develop alongside of it. Again, in that human plus artificial intelligence partnership that I encourage people to think about. So when we look out across the horizon, I actually was really excited this morning. I saw a job posting for a director of generative AI for an organization. And that's the first time I've actually seen a posting come out for that level of role that's very targeted on generative AI. And this was particularly in the context of an organization that has a creative business function. And it was around photo processing was their particular function. So it made sense that they would lean in early because it's an innovative industry and it's an innovative function. But those are the kinds of things that as we look forward, we're going to have to assess what is the industry like and how what is going to be the aptitude and the acceptance timeline for those different industries. For this, the same thing will apply for individual jobs within those. I advise my clients to think about a three-factor framework when they're considering how quickly a role is going to be disrupted. So first, I ask them to think about, is it a routine task or is it a non-routine task? Those routine tasks are going to be disrupted first. So how much of a job role is routine versus non-routine? That'll help you to identify how quickly it'll be disrupted. The second factor is how much mental work versus physical work is included. A role that is 80% physical, 20% cognitive is going to be slower to be disrupted. And the third piece is what is the degree of human interaction that is required in that particular role? The higher the level of human interaction, the slower that role is going to be impacted by artificial intelligence. So using that framework to assess your organization is a really powerful first step to see when a role is going to be disrupted. And as an individual, if you apply that same framework to your role, you'll be able to have a pretty good gauge of how soon your role is going to be disrupted and allow yourself the time, invest now don't wait. Invest now in yourself and in upskilling yourself so that as your role is disrupted, you will grow along with it instead of it being something that leaves you unemployed. I'd like to pivot over to uh, maybe some best practices, what you're seeing out there. And I'll start with you, you know, and you think about your CIO peers, your chief information digital officer peers. Um, what are some of the strategies they're leading with from what, what you're saying? Well, I will start with um, I think this is a phenomenal opportunity for CIOs everywhere to take a thought leadership stance and not just react to what is happening, but be very proactive about it. Nobody really knows AI or generative AI as much as you think they do. So this is the opportunity to just get in there and be the one that is leading the path, that is talking about it, that is educating. To do that, you need to educate yourself. Uh, you need to really understand this is not this magical thing, as I said before. It's it's just math. This is how it computes. And these are the things that it's phenomenal at. And these are the things that it's really not so good at. And by the way, it's a continuum. So it's hard to tell where the line is sometimes. But really 
get in there, play with the technology, see what it can do, but also don't just perceive it as magical thing, understand how it works so that you can start putting the pieces together. So that's really the first step. The second step is then start spreading the word. Make sure that the executive teams understand the power of it and the risks of it. Um, I've been recommending to companies incorporating um, training on generative AI and what are the things to watch out for. For example, don't put sensitive data into the model or uh, understand what hallucinations are and how it provides very credibly looking incorrect information, et cetera. So using that material to incorporate into the regular training that the company is already providing. So for example, the training on phishing that companies provide on a regular basis or any type of cyber security certifications that each employee has to go through, incorporate some of that in so that it seems more um, fitting and more formal and something that is already tracked to make sure that every employee goes through that because there's so many unintended consequences that can happen with the use of this technology that education is the number one thing that we can all do to get people to um, unknowingly, not to unknowingly take risks. It's a great CIO friend out of Pittsburgh. I didn't get his permission, so I'm not gonna use his name, but uh, very, very bullish on, on AI, wants his folks to be able to use it. But when you go to use like a chat GPT, it's blocked until you complete a 10 minute internally developed education program. And those basically cover those bases you just covered, Anna. And so once you do that, you know, they treat people as adults, they know the rules of the road and they're off and running. And, you know, Lisa, we're only eight months into this, right? You mentioned November 30th. So we're still so new, but you're on the front lines with this, you're advising, you're coaching. Do you see any early wins out there that you can, you can point to? Well, first of all, I love your friend's approach. That is brilliant to enable their use of generative AI once they are educated. I can't underscore that enough. I think Anna made such brilliant points there. So from an early wins perspective, there are some practical things that I see happening. First, have a policy. Have a policy and make sure that everyone is aware of what your policy is. Educate. And so to Anna's point, make sure that you're not turning people loose that don't understand that implementing, that adding things like proprietary information or private data about your customers or your employees, that that's inappropriate and that exposes your organization to tremendous risk. So you need to make sure that you understand and are educating about the safe way to use these generative AI tools. Then the next thing that I see really early winners doing is establishing some form of artificial intelligence team. And that is most often being staffed by external people who are experts, in addition to really trusted and highly valued individuals from inside of your organization. And making sure that these individuals have a balanced approach of looking for those things that are the productivity diamonds and looking for those things that are truly innovative opportunities, all balanced against an ethical and safe framework. So the, those that are really embracing generative AI are doing this. They're bringing together a team that is focused on artificial intelligence. This may not be their entire purpose, but it is individuals that are, that are creating this team and having a role on those teams. That's really powerful. Then once that exists, they help to identify pilots that can be done in the organization. And how are we going to measure success for these pilots? And then helping to guide, to project manage in a very agile fashion these pilots, because something that I certainly learned through my own dissertation work is that this ability to create a culture that is small failure tolerant, because we don't always know exactly what we're going to learn or exactly what the outputs are going to be when we're working in partnership with AI. So you may set out with a goal that you end up a little bit over here. You didn't actually meet your goal. You were a little bit off. 
But instead of considering that to be a failure, that is a learning opportunity. And these organizations who are seeing early wins are embracing learning as actual return on investment. And then the next thing that happens is we quickly apply that learning. We pivot to the next stage in the pilot. So it's a quick pivot onto the next stage and you continue to iteratively learn and iteratively build on the possibilities for your organization. So those that are doing really well are following those core tenants. Yeah, I love the intentionality of that, uh, the way you lay that out, Lisa. And you know, speaking of education, I mentioned in, in, in the introduction, you completed your doctorate degree earlier this year. Um, but I want to make an important point. Um, you started that work back in 2020 while working a full-time job. I knew the work you were doing. It was crazy, full-time, family, pandemic. Um, so it wasn't like you were sitting around bored. So what was it that you saw back then that told you this was the place to double down? At this stage in my career, Dan, I wanted to do something in the next phase of my career that would really allow me to make an impact. It's very important to me at this point in my life to be able to make an impact with the blessings of the breadth and depth of experiences and knowledge that I've had the privilege to build throughout my career. And when I challenged myself back in uh, back in 2020, gosh, it was that seems so near. It doesn't seem like that long ago, and yet a whole lifetime has passed since then. But when I challenged myself with that question about what did I want to do next, when I looked at the technology landscape, I could see that artificial intelligence was really on the cusp of being this next thing that created massive impact not only within the technology field, but societally. And I firmly believe that artificial intelligence is going to help us to solve some of the world's most complex problems. I see artificial intelligence solving, you know, curing cancer uh, in partnership with, hum with humans. And so those were the types of things that I felt like were possible. But I will tell you, that I certainly did not guess ahead of time that my timing would be so fantastic that after all of the decades that Anna pointed out of AI you know, growing and evolving, that OpenAI would release ChatGPT just months before I finished my degree and explode this market. So I love to tell you that this was all part of my master plan, Dan, but sometimes, uh, sometimes luck is our friend. <laughs> oh, yeah, we'll take it, right? Anna, do you remember the first time that you tried ChatGPT? Do you remember what your reaction was? I do. Um, I've actually been uh, following uh, these technologies for quite a while, and I, I think it's a responsibility of every CDIO out there to be an early adopter of everything. And so I remember um, I was uh, chatting on my way to work um, with someone and, and they said, hey, I just wrote my um, performance review using ChatGPT. And I was like, you did what? And it was useful material. And that person said, and I'm not going to say the person's name because they really did submit that uh, performance review. Um, I, I just couldn't believe it. So as soon as I got to the office, I, I went in, uh, tried it because I tried previous versions and was kind of underwhelmed by what I was seeing. And so I tried it and it was it was groundbreaking. And um, my um, we were implementing an ERP system at the time and I did something as simple as uh, asking a question about how do you explain, um, I think, uh, how, how do you create an analogy between uh, having surgery and implementing an ERP system. And I thought for sure I was going to stomp this thing. And no, it actually gave me a pre-operating room type of analogy and what it's like preparing for an ERP go live and how you're in surgery and then the post-op care and what happens in each one of the rooms. And he was able to describe it so well that I immediately brought it into my leadership team meeting, which was at 10 o'clock that morning. And from that point on, every question was like, well, what does ChatGPT think? And I even had some of my uh, leadership team members post things on LinkedIn about how I keep pushing them to try this because I was just so amazed at what the technology could do. Did the patient live? That's what I want to know. You got me at the edge of my seat. It sure did. Okay, good, 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 good. Congratulations. <laughs> you know, Lisa, I have a great respect for people that will, uh, 
pursue and complete their doctoral work. It's not for the faint of heart. The dissertation is just, that'll choke a horse on a good day. What, what were the questions you were trying to answer through your dissertation? It is certainly not for the faint of heart, Dan. It was quite an adventure. I will tell you that I was excited about doing my particular research because I have been in the technology arena throughout my career. And so I've certainly learned a lot of lessons through that, but I wanted to see what the data would tell me if I were to ask three questions. So I ultimately studied 46 enterprise situations where they had successfully deployed artificial intelligence. And I asked these three questions. What motivated you to pursue AI? What actions did you take during that process? And what were the outcomes that were created for your organization as a result of that work? And the, there were five core pillars involved in success when I answered those questions. Value creation was number one. So those organizations who actually got to a successful end with their AI projects were laser focused on creating value for their organizations. And I wanna point this out because as technologists, we can be very tempted to look at the shiny new technology or what I call toy AI. And we need to make sure that we're avoiding that at all costs. You have to stay focused on business value creation. The second element was that in order to effectively prioritize, because there's so much you can do, those organizations who, again, stayed very focused, in this case, on customers and being very customer-centric in the way that they prioritize the efforts that they would focus on, that was huge. Third, you needed to create a skillful and collaborative team. Those organizations ha that had gathered the plethora of needed talent and looked for a core belief in those individuals that they were just naturally collaborative and they were naturally curious members of the team, they were successful. The fourth was this idea of being willing to embrace failure, iterate, learn, uh, think of that as truly return on investment. That was a key. And then as no surprise to anyone in this space, the critical role that data plays in your success with any artificial intelligence pursuit. So those were the five elements that came to the surface in these 46 different enterprise environments about what made them successful. Incredible. Yeah, I love those, those highlights. You know, one of the, the, the great gifts or skills of, of the great leaders is the ability to communicate the art of the possible, right? To be able to put people in that cathedral before the first brick is laid. And a lot of times we do that with stories, analogies uh, to bring home a point. So Anna, do you have any go-tos that you're using with different audiences? And I, I, want, it, I want yours too, Lisa. Well, one of the things I like to do is um, demo the technology itself because there's nothing that resonates with people um, as much as trying it out. And so seeing the magic of it and then seeing the errors of it as well. Um, it's, it's very easy to get uh, Gen AI to hallucinate, for example. And so I've actually sat there and um, created those scenarios right in front of people or even had people type in the questions themselves to see the wrong answers. And it really resonates with people so much more having experienced it versus somebody just telling you, hey, this is what it can do. So that's something that is a very powerful thing. Um, I also spend a lot of time talking about um, the having the strong foundation for data, like Lisa mentioned before, without having that, because you will need to augment that with company data to really have excellent AI solutions. Without having a strong foundation, it's garbage in, garbage out, no matter what technology you use, including AI. Um, and so that is something that has resonated with people quite a bit. And then I also spend a lot of time um, with executives teams, teaching them when their IT team brings projects to them, what questions should they be asking the IT team? How well do we understand the AI vendors? Do we know what their training approach is to the algorithms? Because you don't wanna implement these types of solutions in your organization 
without understanding that. Otherwise, you're just giving away all sorts of risks that you're not intending to take. Um, understanding what is the sources of training data, um, and more, most importantly, what data is fed back into the model. So there's a lot of things, and, and I provide examples in what can happen, what can go wrong if you're not aware of what these things are happening. And that very much resonates with the executives. Yeah, I love that, taking the pressure off, which is not our history in our business with demos, right? We want to show it to be good and successful and get the sign off. And But you're saying, no, let's let's show the warts. Let's show that it can be wrong. And uh, you made me think of Walt Carter, great CIO out of Georgia, who wrote a book, uh, We Can't Stay Here, Becoming a Great Change Captain. And he had Chad GPT write a description of the book. And it was phenomenal. Like it was a great description of the book, of his capabilities and why he was the best person to write that book. But there was a, a paragraph that said he he drew upon his his life of homelessness and drug addiction to inform his book. None of that was true, but he's like, be careful, people. <laughs> right. So point well taken. So big shout out to Walt. But Lisa, do you have a go-to? Do you have a story, an anecdote, something that you used to describe it? I believe that artificial intelligence is going to have the same level of impact on society that the creation of electricity has had on society. I like to, to pull that analogy forward because people really can wrap their minds around how much disruption was brought into the environment as a result of electricity both positive and at the time, there was a lot of fear around it as well. They didn't really know how to harness it. They didn't know how to work with it without people being electrocuted. There were some really legitimate fears around electricity, but the benefits were so obviously there that as intelligent humans, we figured out how to work through that wildly disruptive moment in time and today, we're able to work with power in a very safe way through um, the ingenuity of humans, a strong regulatory environment, and a continual focus on wanting to use power for good to, to serve people with it. And so to me, it's a very strong and appropriate analogy to draw for what's happening with artificial intelligence today. And I think that if we're able to wrap our heads around that, we can also learn from what has happened through history. This isn't the first time that we've faced a major disruption. It's not the first time that we've seen certain jobs displaced. So for example, if we think back in time, we used to have operators who sat in a room and literally unplugged from one and cross-connected into another when listening to who it was they wanted to speak with on the other end of the, that call. Obviously, we don't have those operators anymore. Today, we have much, much more sophisticated jobs and much higher paying jobs than what those provided to the environment at that moment in history. So there are absolutely going to be things happen where we lose roles that exist today that aren't going to exist in the future but we will continue to grow and we will see positive extensions of in ways that right now, in this moment in time, we can't even predict exactly what those are going to be, but it will happen. All right, so speaking of electricity, that was a great uh, analogy, Lisa. Anna, I wanna kind of pivot to what's next. Uh, you've got an exciting new opportunity by the time this podcast comes out. Can you give us a preview of what's to come? I'm not yet going to name the, the company, but I'm very excited that in um, a, sh a short period of time, I will be joining uh, a very amazing uh, global organization as their chief digital information officer. Um, it's a very different industry for me, which um, I find very exciting uh, being in consumer goods for quite a while now learning a new industry and seeing how all of these new disruptive technologies apply there is quite exciting. Um, also, I will continue speaking at conferences and speaking to executives, both in technology and outside of technology, about the opportunities that Gen AI is creating and the risks, because I feel like it's all of our responsibility to have our eyes open and to know 
what this is going to um, do to us as employees, as humans, and as a society. So we need to um, kind of put a big bow on this, which I hate to do. I've got more I want to ask you, but we're going to we're going to do that in an article on CI.com next week. But at least I had promised folks that you would help us uh, know how to find you. I've been recommending you to a lot of people. You've got a lot of thought leadership articles, blogs. Where do we find all that? I encourage people to find me on drlisa.ai. It's my website. It's where my blog lives. You're able to reach out and connect with me directly through that medium. I'm also prolific on LinkedIn. It's so important to socially engage with others and to learn together as we go through this journey. So I write on LinkedIn. I'm heavily engaged in the comments. I have a fantastic group of people who engage with me. So I invite you to join those conversations with us. And then if you are an executive, if you're a board member and you're wrestling with these questions about how to manage AI moving forward, how to build an AI strategy, please reach out to me and let me bring my services in to help you solve these problems. I love it. Thanks for taking the time to do that. And, uh, you know, Anna, thank you so much. Lisa, thank you so much. Amazing conversation. I know we helped a lot of people just now. And, and again, I want to point next week, CIO.com, we're going to have an article um, featuring their perspectives around what they call the biggest inflection point for CIOs in the history of the role. That's not hyperbole, this is real stuff. So we're gonna talk about uh, who should own AI inside the company, kind of controversial. So we're gonna, we're gonna kind, of, kind of pick at that. Um, we're gonna talk more about the skills, the roles, um, so we can really set people up for success here, get out ahead of this partner with AI as Lisa talked about. So tune into that. And meanwhile, thank you all so much for tuning in and good luck and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Tech Whispers, inside the playbook of the best digital leaders, a Woolette and Associates podcast. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show as this helps us connect the world's best digital leaders with those who aspire to learn, grow, and thrive in this amazing profession. Thanks for listening. Until next time.